and welcome to our podcast, Film is Lit. I'm Laura, the book expert. And I'm Danny, the film expert. And this is the podcast where we discuss a piece of literature and compare it to the movie that is based off it. Yeah, and we're a real-life couple, and I know what you're thinking. Oh, geez, are they going to have a bunch of inside jokes where we're not going to get it, and that only comes from years of knowing each other? Well, guess what? We're going to try to keep it to a minimum. <laughs> Remember the, the British guy from the place? I don't even think I know <laughs> Anyways, uh, <laughs> today, the book and movie we are discussing is Shutter, Shutter Island. Island. I... Love, let me just start this conversation off uh -huh. with on a me. gushing review. Love this book. Mm -hmm. Knew nothing about it uh, before a few months ago. Yeah. Oh my god. So I found the book at a thrift store. No one had no one had told me to read it. I think the only person that had ever told me to watch the movie was my brother. Shout out to Robin. <laughs> Quarantined <laughs> with my parents. <laughs> Um, yeah, maybe he had told me to watch it once or twice, but it was sitting on my shelf for, I think, probably a couple months, and I was reading a different book that Danny's mom recommended to me over Christmas called It Was Me All Along by Andy Mitchell, and she randomly, the author randomly mentioned in this memoir that she stumbled into a PA position on the Shutter Island shoot because she's from Massachusetts, which is where it was filmed. Um, Shout sorry. out to <laughs> I was going to say sorry if I stole that uh, fun fact. But anyway, so she was talking about how fun it was to work on the set and meet Leonardo DiCaprio and Mark Ruffalo. And I was like, maybe this is the time to pick up the book. And I did. Again, I'm going to stress I knew none of the twists. Mm -hmm. Nothing about the storyline at all. The Literally the only thing I knew was that it was directed by Martin Scorsese, Leonardo DiCaprio starred in it, and Mark Ruffalo was like a co-star. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it blew me away. Uh, I think Danny heard all of my exclamations while I was reading it, because I would usually read it right before bed. And every time there was a twist or every time something would happen, I was like, I know what's going to happen in the end, you know. <laughs> yeah, sure you do, Lore. <laughs> and, then, and then I get to the very end, and again, spoilers on this podcast, but I did not see that coming. I've read some things online where a lot of people said they did see the end coming, that of course he was a patient, but I did. I was blindsided. Pleasantly blindsided. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah, don't feel bad. I didn't see it coming in the movie either. So okay. it had both of us duped. Okay. Well that's good. Well Danny, what was your relationship with the movie? How did you how did you discover it? Yeah, sure. So it came out in two thousand ten when we were sophomores in high school and this was right around the time when I was really getting into films, really discovering that I wanted to be a director and go to film school. So obviously one of the first directors you check out is Mar Martin Scorsese. He, he is one of the, the top directors of all time. And I, this movie was coming out and everyone was talking about how it didn't resemble, it looked like it didn't resemble a typical Martin Scorsese film. You know, he's usually known for his gangster epics 
or his period pieces or our uh, period biopics um, or biopics. biopics. I know you hate biopics. Both are correct. <laughs> I disagree. Both are correct uh, terms and pronunciations. So, and Martin Scorsese had just come off the string of movies he did with Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, Gangs of New York, The Aviator, and then The Departed. Shutter Island was, was his next project with Leo, and it just didn't seem like a normal Scorsese pick. You know, it's this kind of genre, mystery, it, it seemed very pulpy and very unlike Scorsese to take on a project like this, but it had all the kind of prestigious elements that come along with the Scorsese pick, like it was shot by a very renowned cinematographer, Robert Richardson, of course, the cast was stacked with Leo, Mark Ruffalo, Ben, ben Kingsley, um, among others. And yeah, I, I was super excited to see it, but I just, I didn't have, I didn't get around to it. I think I came out. So um, you didn't see it in the theaters? No, I didn't see it in theaters. I, this is embarrassing to admit, but at this point in high school, I didn't, I didn't have a job yet. I had no money. Barely had money to go to the theaters in the first place. And I really got into, again, embarrassing to admit, but I got into streaming movies online for free. Really? Well, Ali, uh, it's blur <laughs> blurred lines of what the thing, I, it's, it's, oh, you're not no. hurting anyone. It's a victimless crime. <laughs> I guess you're hurting the movie industry by not supporting them. I know I'm a huge, uh, I'm a huge hypocrite for not supporting movie theaters when I myself want to eventually become a filmmaker who makes money off of the movies I make. But at the same time, we have two memberships to do two different movie or theaters. So we're, now, we're supporting. Now we yeah, do. Yeah, we're giving plenty back. But never forget the <laughs> sins of our past. So I watched this movie illegally online on my parents computer probably has still has a you're the one who suffered dude you didn't see it fully yeah. on the theater you're the one who suffered i know but even <laughs> in the very low resolution quality of an illegal stream in 2010 <laughs> uh in february of 2010 it's still i still was blown away by this movie and like i said earlier i i didn't it's so obvious on the second watch what the twist is and there are a lot of twists but sure but when i say the twist you know exactly what i'm talking about and it is a twist that completely from start to finish recontextualizes the movie okay yes i really want to talk about this because and i'll let you finish your thought but i really want to talk about that because something that i heard i've heard from a couple people but especially my advisor in college i think it was Dr. Flory, I can't remember, but something that I remember learning was that it's a really good piece of literature if you shut the book or you finish the short story and you need to read it again to just grab all the details for your second, and, it, and all the details are shown in a different light the second time and the third time and the fourth time that you read it. Mm -hmm. And I completely agree because the twist completely shines a different light on the entire story as soon as you rewatch as soon as you re-rack it yeah and because <laughs> there are twists right in movies and books that recontextualize major chunks or or like or recontextualize most of the story 
like Fight Club, for instance, has a big twist that you look at a character in a different light at the end. But this is a movie from literally the first frame until the last. It changes on your second viewing, knowing the twist. It is a movie that requires you to watch it twice. Oh, and, absolutely. And when you watch it twice, you get two completely different experiences. I completely agree. And again, I, I understand that this is a thing that happens with twists in movies, but this is one of the few properties I can think of that it is a completely different product the second time. I totally agree. And I also think, too, the first time you watch it, it's a really great, kind of like what you were saying in the beginning, sort of a pulpy, gritty, Boston accent-injected crime story. And by describing it as pulpy, it automatically makes you not take it seriously and not really look for too much behind the story. And then the second time you watch it, the depth becomes so much more important. It's sort of more of a story about how you treat violently criminal people who also suffer from a mental illness. Mm -hmm. Like that's such a deeper conversation. And so every detail turns into a new conversation about how that, you know, how what we, I guess, consider normal society interacts with those kinds of people. Oh my gosh, I'm yeah. not going to be able to stop talking about this book. Right, and, <laughs> and how you initially view the story, say if you view a trailer, was how mass audiences were predicting the movie would turn out, which is why, as I alluded to earlier, people were kind of confused but also um, surprised and anxious to see this kind of, oh, this is a new turn from Martin Scorsese. He doesn't, he normally does very character focused um, epics, but this is kind of just seems like a straight down the line mystery, uh, pulpy thriller. Mm -hmm. But, but it's, it is that on the surface, but it also is something uh, much more, something more, much deeper that provokes kind of very, very fruitful discussions. Well, and exactly what you said too, it, is a very character-driven story as soon as you realize that he's a patient the whole time. time. Yep, <laughs> like, that's it's the so big character-driven. Yep. Again, it's a full full spoiler podcast here. Um, of but this is yeah, that's the big twist. He's a patient the whole time, and it's so obvious the second time you watch it. But we were both duped. But yeah, no, Paramount was initially going to release this film at the normal time uh, in Oscar season to try to rack up some awards. They're gonna initially going to release it in o October 2nd of 2009. Um, that's kind of o Oscar season is um, usually well, usually starts around late October until the very uh, last day of, of a year. But Paramount was already putting a bunch of their money in promoting some other movies and so they, they pushed Shutter Island to February of the next year, 2010, which is crazy for, to push to for a Martin Scorsese movie to not be put in award season. And after its release, Shutter Island was the first collaboration with Leonardo DiCaprio that did not garner an Oscar nomination. Like I said, huh. so Gangs of New York... The Aviator, The Departed, and then um, in 2013, The Wolf of Wall Street, all his collaborations with Leo, they all garnered a bunch of Oscar nominations, all of them 
hmm. getting uh, Best Picture nominations. With and the, this didn't get yeah. any so, nominations. So think about that. All, uh, what is it? One, two, three, four. Yeah, four collaborations with Leo. All, all get like Best Director, Best Picture, Best Cinematography, all this stuff. And Best Picture, Le The Departed wins Best Picture. But the one collaboration with Leo that didn't get anything was Shutter Island. And this easily could have, I think, at least, I don't know, Best Cinematography for sure. Oh my gosh, um, it's so dramatic. I think, I think <clears throat> maybe I could, I could see a push for Best Supporting Actor for either Ruffalo or Ben Kingsley. I could even see a push for Leo as best actor, although that's kind of, you, you don't really see actors get nominated for genre pieces like this. No matter how good the role, it just usually doesn't happen. But it's just so, it's so weird for a Scorsese movie to have not been released in the prime Oscar season to get, um, to be fresh in the minds of voters for them. Uh, to vote for it and you know obviously that was reflected it was released in the beginning of the next year and it didn't get any nominations when it easily could have gotten a few yeah that's so interesting too because again when I was reading it <clears throat> the only thing I knew going in was Leo and Mark Ruffalo and I had no issue like it is really hard you know I I usually put a complete screen around myself when I know I'm going to read a book that a movie is based on. Mm -hmm. I completely shut down any kind of social media, any kind of spoilers, because I want to enjoy the book as textually integral as possible. And I hate when I get a leak like an actor or something into my head because it is really hard for me to put out those ideas while I'm reading. So, like I said, the only reason I started reading this was because of a different book. So I knew the first, or I knew the two main actors, and watching them on screen, though, was amazing. And not only that, but every, all the other supporting actors really just gelled with the way that I imagined them in the book. Mm -hmm. So, oh, it just was so well paired to the book. I, the casting... Incredible acting, incredible. I loved it. Yeah. Well, on now that we're on talking about the book, give us a little brief uh, intro to you know when it was released and who wrote it and yes. all that good stuff. I should jump in. So the book was written, or it came out in two thousand three. It was written by Dennis Lehane, who has written a bunch of other sort of crime fiction novels. I have not read any other ones, but if anyone has suggestions, I'm very open to reading any of his other work because this was so compelling. Outside of that, I don't really think that there were a lot of changes to the storyline. Like, little tiny things that stuck out were the fact that, like, the riddle that Teddy finds in Rachel's room is a little bit longer, and he solves it much quicker, I think, in the book than he does in the movie. Uh, just little things like that that are kind of details. I think the overall story, you know, if you want to think about the deeper themes and the meanings in the book and the movie are very similar and they don't change at all. I did want to talk about the way that the book opens because it is framed by who we find out later is Chuck, uh, but Dr. Lester Sheehan. 
So there's a little bit sort of like a diary entry about his life, you know, a few decades later, and he's talking about his life on the island. And the other thing it opens with that I don't remember the movie ever talking about, there's an epigraph that, and I personally, this is just a personal obsession, I love epigraphs, and I love trying to understand why, you know, like the the literary point of an epigraph is to contextualize and sort of lend a little bit of tone to the book before you really get into it. So I am personally, you know, obsessed with reading them and trying to figure out how they apply to the book and going back to them every once in a while if I don't understand something in the novel and, you know, trying to apply that sort of logic, if you want to call it. So I wanted to read the opening. This epigraph comes from Elizabeth Bishop from Questions of Travel. It says, must we dream our dreams and have them too? Which is such a clue and yet I still was not able to get the twist I didn't see it coming still both both the book and the movie are filled with obvious clues that are quite literally pointing in our face uh telling us the truth but we are at least first viewers are just stupid well no stupid's (laughs) not the right word but it falls in line with kind of the theme a big theme of the movie and uh, the book which is that it's commenting on how humans we want to hold on to what we believe uh, even in the face of extreme evidence to the contrary totally right and this and it's how thanks it's how you know we it's about how people have the ability to deny reality even when it's staring us in the face, like that epa, epa, uh, epigraph. <laughs> epigraph. Thank you for explaining it to me, even though I definitely already knew what it was before you explained, I explained it. explained for the fans. Yeah, for the fans, and not for me, who, again, definitely knew what an epitaph was. Epigraph. Um, sure. But, yeah, so, of course, Andrew Latis, or Teddy, he is holding on to this belief, the entire movie, that he didn't kill his kids that his that this guy or his wife wife, um that this guy andrew latis burned down his apartment with his wife in it and when the reality is that he's in that mental institution for the criminally insane and that he killed his wife and kill and by proxy killed his kids by not getting his wife help he blocked out his wife's depression that he had he would drink and he would spend time away from his kids and his family he would use his job as an excuse to be a negligent father and he had avoided her depression this depression kind of blossomed into mental um, instability she and he admits at the end of the movie that she had told him that there's a bug living inside her brain and by not getting her help that led to her snapping and killing her kids. So he, by proxy, kind of killed his kids. But he's blocking that reality, creating a new one, despite this reality of him being a patient staring in his face. And on your second viewing, it stares you, the viewer, in the face that he is a patient the whole time. It's so so blatantly obvious. You know what? This 
rarely happens. You know, the cliche that the book is already is uh, always better than the movie. Mm-hmm. I I would not say that this movie is better or the book was better, but it is very rare that I think the movie really supports the experience of the book mm-hmm. because like you were saying, there are so many hints that tip you off that his reality that he's expressing isn't the reality that other people are experiencing. So for example, so many times in the book and the movie, he talks about how Chuck fumbled with his gun right at the very beginning. Yes. So many times. I'm glad you brought that up. And another thing that, that sort of tips you off is the cigarettes that he can never find his cigarettes. And Chuck is always the one to supply him a cigarette And he talks about how the smoke is sweet and it hits his throat a little bit differently. And I think that, so that stuck, those two things stuck out to me in the book. And there are a couple times when Latus slash Teddy is dreaming and those things come into his mind. His wife says, there's something about the gun. There's something about his hands. She literally tells him slash the reader to pay attention to those details. And I could not figure out why that was important. So that that's how sort of the writing buries that lead. But in the movie, I think those things are so brilliantly visually expressed. Like you can see Latus's expression slash Teddy's expression change when Chuck is fumbling with his gun. And you can see him get really confused when he can't find his cigarettes. And One of the things that I thought was so brilliant, I don't think it's in the book because it is such a visual cue, is when Chuck and Teddy are in Nearing's office and he asks them, I think Crawley asks them if they want a drink and he asks Teddy, what will you have? Or like, what can I serve you? And he gives him his order and then he immediately makes Chuck's drink. And he doesn't have to ask. Oh. And that to me was such an amazing visual cue of like, they know him. Yes. Nothing has to be said. And I don't know what you could have, how you could have written that into a book and had it had, have it stick out so, like such a sore thumb. But to mm-hmm. me, that's just an example of how the movie is so brilliantly written and acted and directed that it really supports that whole idea in the book that you couldn't necessarily push in that way. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I just, I can't, I could talk about this book and movie for hours. <laughs> yeah. The, the screenplay was adapted uh, by uh, Leda Calogritis. Latus? Uh, latest what? Um, <laughs> but yes, it's Leda, uh, Leda Calogritis. She wrote um, Altered Carbon, the, the first two seasons of that show. Terminator Genesis she did some work on. Hasn't written a lot, but she did um, great work with this screenplay. Yeah. For sure. And yeah, the so I wrote this down in my notes. The biggest clue that I just completely missed the first time when you're talking about Chuck fumbling with his gun. So when they both arrive, the main uh, guard there, McPherson, played by John Carroll Lynch, a great 
uh, character actor, totally nails the Boston accent. Um, he asks them to, you know, hand over your firearms. And uh, Teddy does so because he's uh, with ease since he right. was an actual a cop. Marshal. A marshal. A duly appointed <laughs> duly federal, appointed federal, federal marshal. Um, <laughs> but Chuck fumbles with his gun and then Mark Ruffalo does and he he can't get the gun out so he just hands him his whole holster. The entire thing. And watching it the second time I'm like how the I was pissed at myself because it's like obviously he's not a cop if he can't get his gun out of the hole and, right. and he gives it to McPherson and you see him and McPherson rolls his eyes like oh my god look at this guy he can't sure. even pretend to be a cop. It is so <laughs> it is like Scorsese is making fun of you, the viewer. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It is so blatantly obvious yeah. that the second time you watch this movie, it's it's kind of it's funny. It, it's mm. it turns into a, kind of a pseudo comedy, uh, making where you are the butt of the joke. That's it's, such a good point because it is. It's those tiny, tiny, tiny little details, like a an eye movement from an orderly or an offhanded comment you know, by nearing or something. It's, the details are so rich in that, in that hinting, so heavy-handed that you're totally right. It's just a slap in the face after you know the twist at the end. And I think that this, the book was tailor-made for, to be adapted into a movie because there are certain visual clues that you can only see, well, it's in the name, visualized, yeah, right? No, you can't absolutely. write. You can't totally write agree. certain details down in a book. Another note I wrote is when uh, they were Teddy and Chuck were interviewing all the patients in that one scene. And it's kind of that montage of them interviewing all of them. When they're interviewing them, there's three frames, right? There's three close-ups. There's one. Uh, there's three medium close-ups. One on Teddy, one on Chuck, and one on the patient they're interviewing. Now, whenever the a medium close-up is on Teddy or the patient, there's a guard in the background of their frame. Whenever the medium close-up is on Chuck, there's no one, there's no guard behind him. This is to uh, subtly hint at each, each patient has a guard to yeah. them. And Chuck didn't need chunk, uh, chunk, <laughs> chunk, <laughs> um, uh, I'm going to leave that in. Chuck didn't Chunk. need a guard because he's not a patient or totally. he's not suspicious. He's, he yeah. works there. He's yeah. a psychiatrist. But Teddy, there's always kind of someone near him watching over him at all times. I agree. And that's why I say that neither the book nor the movie is better than the other. I think because while it's true there are so many visual aids that I got so much out of, so much enjoyment and so much depth uh, from the movie, there were also some sort of relationship uh, aspects that came through in the book because the author, Lahane, was able to spend more time on Dolores slash Rachel and the inner workings of Latis. So mm -hmm. that's why I think they complement each other so well. They, and neither one of them sort of eclipse the other. Yeah. Yeah, man. Now... I have um, a couple questions about the book. How did Shoot. Dennis Lehane talk about Andrew's time in the war and and of him entering the Dachau uh, concentration camp? How how did he put that to paper? Because you know when you talk about something serious like 
like the Holocaust and like that, you you really don't get, or at least I don't really get the impact of what happened until you actually see it. You know, yeah. you see that visual aid, and so I'm 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 curious as to how Lahane depicted an event that traumatic, traumatic enough to add uh, to Teddy's kind of psychotic break. Well, so that's a really good question, and I do have a confession. I read this book a few months ago, so <sighs> my my answer might not be super fresh. But he does talk about it, and he talks about viscerally how Teddy knew that experience was going to follow him. I think he was really aware. And side note, the way that he moves the gun with his foot away from the dying SS officer, mm-hmm. amazing. In that, the movie. In the movie, yeah. sorry. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, to be very honest, I don't remember if that's in the book, but seeing that scene in the movie and then watching it again when I sort of was looking over your shoulder mm-hmm. as you watched for the podcast, oh my god, it's comedic, you're right, like, there there are a lot of darkly comedic moments, mm-hmm. but it's so deep. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's such a big deal. And it plays into, it adds to the twist, because the whole time when uh, Teddy's seeing flashbacks of this girl saying you should have saved us, the whole time you're thinking, oh, he's saying you should have saved us as in the um, Jewish people who were uh, slaughtered in the Holocaust, which is true, that haunts him, but that kid is really his daughter. That's saying you should have saved us as in you should have gotten our mom help. Yeah. And and that's like, oh, the whole time, because you're thinking that's following, and the Holocaust is following him um, the whole time, that guilt of getting there after the fact. But it also is the guilt of him not saving his children, yeah. which just adds to the twist. So, and I think, I think too, like, like you were asking earlier, I think that adds to his break, because mm-hmm. even though, I mean it's really hard to blame someone for having PTSD. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right. It's impossible to blame him for becoming an alcoholic and, and a neglectful father after he comes home from World War II having experienced the liberation of Dachau. Libera- which mean, which was a real event that happened. Oh, of course. The yeah. libera- no, well, of course, uh, the, yeah. this liberation I'm talking about on April 29th, of 1945, American soldiers did storm Dachau and uh, line up the uh, the Nazi guards. And it's unclear if it was kind of a miscommunication or if a spur of the moment kind of thing like it happened in the movie. Right. But there was, guns did go off and then all the Nazi guards ended up being slaughtered. Right. Uh, n- not... Well, and I think, I think it was a bit of an exaggeration to have like, I think when they line them up, in the movie, there are like 30 guards. I think that was a little bit of an exaggeration, but yeah. I think it goes back to just Teddy's clearly undealt with trauma yeah. from that experience. And again, it's really hard. You want to support Dolores's mental health as well. And mm-hmm. obviously she vocally asked Teddy to help her and mm-hmm. tried to communicate, I'm having trouble and maybe didn't have the language to express herself. And it's really interesting, you know, when you talk about her saying things like, there's a beetle in my head, it's pulling strings. Those things I think to a lot of people now are clearly 
the words of someone asking for help and saying something's not right, I feel like I don't have control over my life or my actions or, you know, my family's trajectory. And so, you know, you really want to empathize with her. But at the same time, it's, you know, it's you're watching these two damaged people do their try to do their best. And unfortunately, it just it it their storylines take place during a time period where that wasn't supported. And 20 years after the fact, too, you know, we're talking about World War II. Uh, what year did you say the liberation of Dachau? Uh, 45. 45. So 20 years later, I think this book, or okay, maybe actually nine. just 10 years, yeah, nine or 10 years later, you know, clearly some people have come around to those ideas of, trying to mentally heal people with talk therapy instead of shock therapy because we see that with Chuck and we see that through Dr. Crawley or Kali. Uh, but that mentality of, you know, supporting people and not treating them like they're insane has not fully turned around the practice of psychology and medicine mm -hmm. yet. Yeah, because, yeah. you know, because like, Ashcliffe still exists. In, yeah, and many soldiers coming home from World War II didn't seek help at yeah. the time. Because both Dolores should have seeked help, but so should have Teddy. And yeah. and he, he was in denial of both his uh, trauma and his wife's. Speaking of denial, this leads nicely into the next fun fact. So the title... Shutter Island. Mm -hmm. did, did you know this? I'm about no. to blow your mind. Oh, tell me. Oh, I don't know if I I'm can about take to more. blow your mind, girl. Oh, what? Tell the me. title is an anagram. Shut up. Nope. Shut up. The title is an anagram for two for two things actually. Up. So the first is an anagram for truths and lies. Okay. And then it's also truths and denials. You shut up. How yeah. did I not come across that? I don't know. I, I didn't come across that on my own. I did, came across in my research. but Well, but I did research and I didn't find that. Well, I guess I'm better. Than, no, I'm okay, see, that is really interesting, though, because I, I did wonder why Ashcliffe... Do they say it takes place on Shutter Island? In the movie? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, then never mind. So Shutter Island is... Okay. Well, okay. Let me rephrase... They, everyone calls the island Ashcliff, right. but when Teddy is talking to Rachel in the cave, who's not actually there, right? Yeah. Rachel, she calls it Shutter Island. So I think Teddy calls Ashcliff Shutter uh... Island. I don't know if any other character calls Ashcliff Shutter Island in the movie, huh. but I know that Rachel says you'll never get off Shutter Island. So. Okay, well, interesting. That means we need to re-rack the book and the movie. Yeah, re-rack them. Pay attention, because I know, just right off the bat, I know that from the prologue, Dr. Sheer Sheehan, Sheeran, Ed Sheeran, <laughs> Dr. Ed Sheeran, no, Dr. Uh, Sheehan says the island and Ashcliffe Hospital. Okay. I don't know if... I, again, I'd have to reread to see if anybody called it Shutter Island, but I was interested to know why it's called Shutter Island if it's always referred to as Ashcliffe Hospital. Mm -hmm. Well, there you go. Uh, 
Truths and Denials, Shutter Island. Excuse me. I choked on my wine. Oh, yeah. Laura's chugging a nice uh, bottle of California Roots Pinot Grigio <laughs> got for $5 at Target. <laughs> I blew my cover. We're out in the open now. Um, yeah. You know I can't relax without a glass of wine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but before we go into our discussion of the ending of both the book and the movie, um, I just want to touch on a couple more technical aspects of the movie and why. Um, I Please love it. Too. I'm, I'm partial to a movie like this because, well... It's a, a Massachusetts movie, oh, and yeah. it's not um, well. It's not about Massachusetts, but the essence is there in uh, in every frame or whenever someone talks. Right now, our boy Leo, <laughs> not the best at the Boston accent, as we were making fun of before. The we are duly, duly appointed, appointed federal, federal marshals, marshals. <laughs> and the, that's also an inside joke uh, with my brother Tim. We quote that line all the time because it's just so awesome. Uh, <laughs> but the thing is that the, so the key, so the key to the Boston accent is in the subtlety of it, where it is so close to a regular, um, I guess, accent like mine, which is just a non a non accent. Well, someone, ar someone argued that I have an accent, but kind of the neutral, there are no inflections on the words, it's very neutral. And someone, an actor like John Carroll Lynch, who plays McPherson, he has nailed it because it's in certain words, he'll talk normally, but in certain words will be changed just slightly. And that slight change is jarring enough. To where you're like, oh, this isn't a normal, this is an accent right here. When you have someone like Leo going like, it, going like, pock the con, hobbit, yod type of level <laughs> of, of accent work. That's like, you're not even hearing an accent, you're just hearing a performance, right? Whereas John Carroll Lynch has nailed it because it's in the subtlety of it, subtlety of it. We were like, okay, he's a Boston guy. Like he's, he's lived there his whole life. Well, hey, if you want to make a study out of this accent, uh -huh. watch what am I going to say? Blow the man down? Uh-huh. Oh, because, which is the main accent. Which, and this is a total tangential section here because that movie is not based on a book or a short story as far as I know. But, boy, if you want a study in the New England accent, mm -hmm. watch Blow the Man Down. It is such an enjoyable yeah. cultural piece. Yeah, about a, a salty, briny seaport in Maine, which Maine... Um, is is the main accent is similar to the Boston accent, but just with a slight difference. Uh, these little slight sure. like characteristics that kind of change it ever so slightly. But uh, anyway. But yeah, yeah. But going back to Leo, uh, he it, he is such an engaging actor. Where even though his Boston accent isn't great, it doesn't really matter. He right. is so in control of his of his performance in terms of his his facial expressions, of his inflections, of how he speaks. He is such a dynam dynamic actor where, again, this is also the case in The Departed where it takes place in Boston. He's supposed to have an accent. Where he's not good at the accent, it doesn't matter. But then now to backtrack even further of me talking about how this movie is so Massachusetts, the majority of it 
was filmed in uh, Massachusetts locations like Pedex Island in Boston Harbor, and then Medfield State Hospital, and then also the Turner Hill County Club in um, Ips Ipswich, Massachusetts. Also, speaking of Maine, they shot a little bit in Acadia National Park in Maine. Um, a lot of the effects shots where they're overlooking the cliffs, that was shot on a soundstage. But everything of this movie is just so Massachusetts in that, that accent and the sea and the, and the harsh weathers during kind of like hurricane season by when you're by the sea. It just, every, every film um, is just dripping with Massachusetts uh, lore to it. And just like with a uh, film, like I also loved uh, last year, Knives Out, Mm. takes place in Massachusetts. Yes. Yeah, it's not about Massachusetts, but the state, the essence of it is there yes. in every frame. Being being a masshole myself, um, <laughs> born and raised in Westfield, Massachusetts, I'm partial to movies that take place. So that's an extra element that uh, kind of, I guess, unfairly makes me love this movie even more. Um, yeah. But yeah, then... More technicals. Shot by one of the greatest cinematographers out there, Robert Richardson. He's not my favorite cinematographer. That award goes to Roger, Roger Deakins. Deakins, which, yeah, I'm going to find ways to mention his name throughout this whole podcast. But Roger, uh, sorry, Robert Richardson, he shot, he's also Tarantino's like main cinematographer, so he shot Inglorious Bastards, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, all the Kill Bill movies, Django Unchained. He shot with Scorsese, The Aviator. Just an amazing cinematographer. I actually think it's my, next to next to the mystery, right, in the reveal, my favorite aspect of this movie is probably the cinematography. Mm -hmm. Just absolutely yeah. gorgeous and eerie and draws you in. It's Dramatic. it's It's electric. And I don't know if you're going to talk about uh, the score. Mm -hmm. But speaking of dramatic, my goodness, I turned on the score to take my notes when I was going back through the book, and it is just the creepiest score. I love it. It immerses you so well combined with the cinematography. Oh my goodness, it just gives you like massive chills and stress dreams. <laughs> yeah, um, and the score is actually, so there are two parts to the score, right? The main, kind of the Dum dum yeah. dum dum. That's a little. I gotta admit, it's a little over dramatic in the in the beginning when they're literally all sure. they're doing is just driving to the island, and the yeah, music is like blaring, and you're like, "Jeez, can we turn down the volume a I little bit?" Know. I loved it. Yeah. I, well, I I, I yeah. loved it too. But so that main score um, was by uh, Robbie Robertson, not Robert Richardson. So the score was Robbie Robertson, uh, who did that. But of course, there's one song that appears whenever Teddy is, uh, or Andrew Latest is having flashbacks of his wife, right. which is by uh, Max Richter, and the song is called On the Nature of Daylight, uh, which I'll play a little snippet here. Yeah, so Mac, that song also, you might recognize it from the beginning um, and ending of Arrival, the movie Arrival, which is another 
movie Oof, and another book, fave another fave which we'll be talking on this podcast sometime absolutely spoilers um <laughs> because it was originally a short story but yeah that song i mean my goodness that just knocks you out every time and and max richter is one of the best uh, uh composers out there he did the uh score all the score for the leftovers that tv show one of my favorites mm-hmm. so amazing score by both rob robbie robertson and Max Richter, and acting, I said, across the board. I particularly, I was struck by, when I watched it for this podcast, it had been the third time I've seen it, and I was really struck this time by Ben Kingsley's performance, as when he, when the twist is finally revealed, Dr. Colley, Ben Kingsley is just so desperate for yeah, Andrew to break through. You can feel that desperation, yeah. and it really comes through in his performance, and I was really impressed by this time, you know, the first time... You watch it, it's like Leo, and then the second time you you see kind of Mark Ruffalo, the subtlety of Mark Ruffalo's performance and others. But my third time, I'm like, I was really struck by Ben Ben Kingsley's performance. His eyes are so pleading. And a note note I had um, in the beginning is that Ben Kingsley's character is kind of a bad actor. Because he's not, because he's not an actor, right? Mm-hmm. He's a psychiatrist. This whole thing's a role playing thing. But you can kind of notice um, that he's a bad actor when they're talking about they they have all the orderlies huddled, and Teddy is asking them if you know if anyone could have seen uh, Rachel sneak out, and then he gets one of the orderlies to kind of admit that he went to the bathroom, and Doctor Colley's just like you broke protocol, oh my god. And it's kind of, and the first time I saw it, I was like, that was an awful line delivery. <laughs> but but when you see it a second time, you realize, oh, he's just, this is all an act. It's he, a great actor playing a bad actor. Yeah, a great actor playing trying a bad actor, to a trying actor. to be a good actor. It's sure. all these, I mean, that that's yeah, just. the layers. Just the layers, like, just in that one line delivery alone, I mean, really shows kind of the complexity of this movie, the, how cool it is to see it a second time. Well, and I want to interject something, too, about how interesting it is to go back and either reread or rewatch the movie, because if you look at the character transition, so if you're going in with no context, like I did, you automatically hate Kali, and you automatically hate Nearing. Mm-hmm. And the way that those characters transform after different viewings is incredible and it's airtight Mm -hmm. that's what i think is so mind-blowing too because you know even as you start to realize that maybe you don't understand everything that's going on on the island maybe you start thinking like i did I started thinking maybe Kali is taking people to the lighthouse. Maybe Kali is behind, you know, the shock therapy or the abuse. And you because and you start sort of building your case and then the end comes and you're like, What? He yeah. was trying to help the whole time and he's like pleading yeah. with with Teddy slash Andrew Latis to just this time, this is your last chance. You have to help me here because I am out of options to try to help you. Yeah, he's it's like, just he's incredible. like, we're gonna lobotomize you, Andrew, and you, and you yeah. can tell from his performance that he didn't want to have to tell Teddy that. Right. That that was like a secret that he was never planning on telling Teddy. But at in that moment, that was his at his, he was pleading and that just erupted out of him like yeah. word vomit. Like oh they're gosh. gonna they're gonna lobotomize you, Andrew. Yeah. So 
Yeah, that's all good. So that, speaking of the ending, let's go to the very ending and go get your take on it. But from what I read, the ending of the book is slightly, it doesn't leave it up to interpretation like the movie does. Yes. So I actually want to tie this in a little bit about how great Leonardo DiCaprio's performance is. Mm-hmm. Because when I finished the book, and I know I said in the beginning of the podcast that the book and the movie don't change too much. And I still stand by that. I don't think the themes of treating mental illness with respect change. I think both the movie and the book have the same stance on that. But the end does really change. So when I finished the book, last page, same scene if you've seen the movie, I thought it was pretty clear that Teddy did not break his dream sequence or his imaginary scenario. Teddy says, so what's our next move? And Chuck answers, you tell me boss. And then blah, blah, blah. And then I don't know, Chuck, you think they're onto us? And Chuck says, nah, tilts his head, squints into the sun. We're too smart for that. And then Teddy says, yeah, we are, aren't we? So that is the last line of the book. And I think that's pretty clear Mm -hmm. that Chuck decides Andrew's gone. Like this is, you know, that's the end. He has to be lobotomized. Going back to how great Leonardo DiCaprio is in this scene, you know, you can track his eye movements because of the shots that he sees. He sees the lobotomy tools. He's clearly making a conscious decision to act at this point. Mm -hmm. And he makes, and he says the line that's not in the book, but in the movie, Mm -hmm. right before he's taken away, he says, this place makes me wonder which would be worse, to live as a monster or to die as a good man. Yep. So what's your interpretation of that line? Yeah, so he's clearly making the conscious decision to die as a good man, as he says. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, gosh, it's so heartbreaking when, when you see him make that decision because in the book, you know, it's just a broken person who's had a really tough life and, you know, was dealt a shitty hand, a really intense hand going to Germany and coming across Dachau. And then on top of that, he was not able to come back to, you know, a healthy home life situation. And yeah, he decides to shut down after that. It's yeah and it's heartbreaking and the first time i saw it i'm like oh they're leaving it up to interpretation it's like does he actually believe that or is he intentionally baiting Mm -hmm. chuck so he can be lobotomized the second and third time i watched it it's pretty clear from you're saying like oh yeah he's making a decision he has broke through but it, it doesn't matter he's made the decision to essentially die right by by getting lobotomized and it kind of it it's slightly happy because Chuck has in the movie he said, you know, if you don't break through, everything we have done will be discredited. Mm-hmm. And in the end, 
since he gets lobotomized, everything is going to be discredited. But Chuck knows that they did actually break through. Mm -hmm. But but you know Teddy gets end up. Uh, Andrew gets lobotomized anyways, well, but he yeah. knows. Yeah. Well, and this is an interesting place to bring up the framing in the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. Because when he talks about his experiences 10 years ago at the hospital, he talks about this sort of, uh, not metaphor, what, what happens in the Bible? Parables, that's it. So it's kind of a parable. He says that every night when he was working on the island, he watched the rats try to swim to this other little tiny island offshore and that they never made it because of the tides or whatever. And then one night he saw one rat make it across and scurry up the sand and he ends the prologue by saying, I thought that if Teddy were sitting with me, he would have seen that rat too. He would have. And I'll tell you something else, Teddy, he would have clapped. <laughs> like, so again, like that idea that he knows that they were on the same team at mm -hmm. the very end and that Teddy decided to, you know, discredit Chuck's quote unquote clinical research because his pain was so great. It's really sad. And it, it does sort of reveal the bond that they created as psychologist and patient and, you know, co-marshals. <laughs> duly appointed <laughs> federal duly marshals. Duly appointed federal marshals. You know, it's really sad. And I think it adds another layer of tragedy to the end of the book. You know, it's kind yeah. of, it's like at the end, nobody's a winner because everybody who's trying to help Teddy is discredited. And everybody who wanted to prove that the shock therapy and the lobotomies worked ended up destroying this really sensitive man who was clearly, you know, open to the uh, side effects of PTSD or direct effects of PTSD. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, what a caring man that ends up lobotomized. So many layers, like an onion. <sighs> Fitting, because onion makes onions make you cry. And this movie, movie made almost me ball. made me cry. No, well, it made me. <laughs> well, but yeah, well, closing thoughts. Would you recommend the book? Yes, okay. Moving on. Highly recommend, <laughs> yes. If we are rating out of four stars, is that our rating system? Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Four stars out of four. Go pick this book up. Go pick up. The DVD or Blu-ray of <laughs> Shutter Island. Sorry, this is your your time. How would you rate Shutter Island? Yeah, no, this is a four out of four for me too. I mean, this it, you have a movie that's so technically dynamic and engaging, and then it's also a great story, and it's made it's made for rewatch watching it. Oh yeah, yeah, four re out of four, bait. easy re rack bait for <laughs> sure. All yeah, right. well, have we talked enough? If you've, I mean, I hope you've seen the movie by this point, if you've listened to this entire thing. But, yeah, go watch it pronto. Read the book, too, if you want. Well, this has been a great discussion. I Did I mention I love you? <laughs> oh, you stop. Yes, of course you did. <laughs> okay, good. Well, I do. And mm. remember, I hope... <laughs> <laughs> and remember... 
That's how the berries go. Remember the uh, British guy from the thing? It's a couple no. inside joke. You wouldn't get, listener. You All right. Well, no, we should just play along. Uh, <laughs> anyways, I'm I'm Danny. I'm the film expert. I'm Laura. I'm the book expert. And you've been listening to <laughs> Film is, is Lit. lit. <laughs> well, goodbye. We we don't know how to sign off yet. We'll figure out. Figure uh, it out. You can find Danny on Letterboxd. If you oh want yeah, to follow Danny, on Danny G reviews is my letterbox name where I post all my movie reviews. Yeah, cool. And I also have a letterbox. You, which you never post at. I See, never this do. is a, one of the. Did you get your hands I exist off my name? to follow to follow Danny and like his reviews. Amen. Well, <laughs> take care. Read some letterbox reviews, and we'll see you on the next Other one. Other side of quarantine. That that should be our sign sign off. We'll see you on the next. The other side of quarantine. quarantine. Well, it's not always going to be a quarantine. I hope not. All right, let's sign off already. Bye. Bye.